Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Aloha, Talking Biotechers! Today is a really special episode of Talking Biotech as we lift our gaze to the beautiful islands of Hawaii. Now, over the last several years, Hawaii has been an epicenter of genetic engineering consternation. Large multinational companies treasure the islands because of their stable, warm climates. It's a place where they can produce two or three seasons of hybrid corn seed for the mainland farmer. The locals, they see this level of massive production as an infringement on paradise, and in many cases fear the plants and products that are used on them. There's even a rift that's developing between the people that live there and the people employed by the companies, who also are residents of the island. Now, I had an opportunity to integrate with this situation firsthand back in uh, Kauai in 2013. And what I found was an island of passionate, good people that was split in two. My heart went out to the workers at the companies who are mostly proud employees with farming backgrounds. Many of them are descendants of farmers that used to work the land in sugar and pineapple companies in the decades past. On the other side, there's people living in fear of being poisoned. They're convinced that farming operations are killing them and harming their families and harming their fragile Hawaiian environment. Now, I understand all of their perspectives, and when I look through everyone's lens, it's really easy to see why there's no peace in paradise. Sadly, and maybe ironically, the collateral victim is the papaya, which has the opportunity to really unify all of these interests. You see, genetically engineered papayas are a common crop on the islands, particularly in the major production areas of Oahu and the Big Island of Hawaii. It's a major success story of genetic engineering. It also reminds us that these technologies are not just about big profits for multinational companies. These are products that are really, possibly, going to help people. So this episode of Talking Biotech centers around papaya. It's much more like This American Life than it is Science Friday. It's about how a problem came to cripple an industry, how smallholder farms suffered, and how technology came to the rescue to solve the problem. Now, in complete poetic justice, that technology came from one of Hawaii's native sons, a local kid with a speech impediment, so-so grades, and a knack for science that would find university mentors that would foster his interest in science to eventually solve this problem that plagued the island. So today, I'm talking biotech. The story in two parts, Act 1, 
the words of Joni Camilla. Joni is the daughter of several generations of papaya farmers. She tells her story about growing up on a farm threatened by disease and the changes that came from technology. Act 2, Dr. Dennis Gonsalves, Hawaii's native son, comes home to solve the problem. So once again, we're back on Talking Biotech, and really in our episode on papayas, it's important for us to understand the human element of the innovation. And the innovation came at a time that was really important, and we can see it in the textbooks, but nothing better than to talk to people where it was actually impacting their lives. And I'm very fortunate to sit with Joni Camilla, who has not just been uh, someone affected by the papaya innovation, but someone who also has been very effective in a voice in Hawaii on discussing biotechnology and its ramifications. So welcome to Talking Biotech, Joni. Thanks, Kevin. I'm glad to have uh, a chance to tell our story um, about the papaya because it's not really heard enough. And just a little background on me. Um, my dad is a longtime papaya farmer in Hawaii on the island of Oahu, and my grandfather was also a farmer. And right now, the farm is in the process of going to the next generation, my brother, which is one of the reasons why I decided to start speaking out. Because I'm, I was very worried that we would lose this farm if we were to have what the activists wanted, which was a complete ban of the technology. I was fortunate enough to be able to have an odd job in college of doing the initial papaya, doing the cross protection and going in the field and grinding up uh, papaya, uh, cucumber leaves and making a buffer and inoculating thousands of papayas. And I used to think that, you know, that was just a random job. It would never, I would never go into plant pathology because my dad would tell me, don't go into farming. The farm is dying. I don't know what we're going to do. So I never went into it, you know, and it was sad. It was really sad to see my dad's life's work possibly disappearing. Well, could we go back to that and start at the beginning of maybe what was papaya farming like for your grandfather and for your father, and then how the disease changed that? Uh, papaya farming basically, they're all small farmers. It's all maybe 10-acre fields, maybe 2-acre fields. And the papaya tree itself is a long, herbaceous tree, essentially. And when the flowers start coming out, the papayas are on there. And, you know, when the disease started, no one wanted to cut down their trees, whether it be a gardener, whether it be another papaya farmer, because they saw still papayas on there. Why would you want to cut down your tree? And my dad knew the devastation of these, the disease because of that. And so he would tell the neighbor, hey, your tree has disease. You need to cut it off. But, you know, these old farmers said, I'm not going to cut it off. There's still fruit. Why would I want to cut my tree and start all over? And so every time that happened, my dad's fields would get attacked. All the trees would have to be cut down little by little as they got the disease. My dad's farm had to keep moving all over the place. And so the farm was Waikane, went to another place, another place. And eventually, no matter where we went, the disease kept ravaging it. Every time, my dad would have to take the machete, cutting down the trees, cutting down the trees. And that's why it looked really futile in the early 90s, because there was no stopping of the disease. 
And, and just to give this more of a context for listeners, this is on the big island. This is on Oahu. Oahu. This is on Oahu. And so um, when you're moving from place to place, uh, this is um, you're moving around the edge of the island. Or tell me a little bit about the area and how easy it is to move a papaya farm. Uh, it's pretty difficult because you have to find affordable land. You have to move all your equipment. You have to move all your tractors, all your processing, all your sheds, everything. Logistical is... It's a logistical nightmare, essentially, and it makes farming that much harder. The ground is different. The way you're going to farm, the way you're going to plow is different. It's it's tremendous amount of extra work that, you know, was hard. Every time your fields die, you had to move. Very, very difficult. And so when you heard about the innovations that were coming, or this potential uh, solution, how did that come about? Was your father tied in with the science or the scientists, or did or how did how did that connection come about? Uh, my dad has always been a papaya industry leader, so he's been Hawaii Papaya Industry Association leader, and so he's heard what has happened to other farmers, and he said we need to do something. He's an innovator, and he said we can't keep doing things the same way. We need to take the lead and change what we're doing, and here's a potential solution that can keep us all farming. And it can also keep us from having to plow down more forest to farm. So this is, this is what his idea was with the industry, was we should use this solution to save the environment. And that's really important in a place like Hawaii, where, where really farming has to integrate with a, with a fragile environment and the fragile ecosystems. And to be able to uh, maintain farming productivity and still be able to respect the island, which I know is so important to the people there, um, that th- it almost seems that a biotechnology solution would be something that would be very welcome. And so, what were those first times like when the first trees came, or or and was there broad acceptance in the beginning? Uh, for papayas in Hawaii, it is a staple. So people religiously go to the stores every day or every week to get their papayas because it's one of the most healthiest fruits there. And so my dad's longtime customers who had no longer had papaya were just clamoring, when is the papaya going to be coming? When is the papaya going to be coming? So finally, when it got approved, they were thrilled. They were so happy. And just to show an example of how dedicated the customers are to papaya is that at a time, my dad would have a lot of off-grade. And, you know, he, he couldn't sell it in the market because it wasn't market-grade. So he would just dump it in the back of the field or give it to the pig farmer. And I told my dad one day, he had 1,000 pounds one day. I said, you know, Dad, I want to sell it in my garage. So I put it in my garage, and I sold it one week. Maybe seven people came. The next week, 27 people came. The following week, there was like 50 people came. And, you know, it just showed how much people rely on that fruit. And Hawaii is just very unique in that, People love it there. And my dad loves growing a quality food, and he he loves doing it because he likes the people saying, oh, that is good stuff. That's the best. And and I I love those kinds of stories because we're talking about something that's a local staple that now can be grown locally and, you know, sold out of a garage to people who want it. And these are the stories that we hear in, uh, you know, in other production methods as being like these very homey kind of feel to them but really was the case with papaya. And so when, when did you start to see resistance 
to this idea, meaning not, not viral resistance, I mean resistance from the public against this idea? Actually, we've always had a very small minority of resistance for years, um, mainly with the, the little uh, anti-GMO groups that were there before, but it really started to grow with the research on the tarot, the GMO tarot possibility. That really started a furor because it, it took a cultural symbol and got people really involved, and then they started that whole campaign. And what made it really worse was the social media, where people were pumped out tons of information. And I happened to be on the social media early, just as a passive observer, and that's where I saw that the resistance started to grow, and I saw a lot of misinformation from online newspapers like the Civil Beat that started to really pump out misinformation. And, And that got me mad because I thought... Why are they allowed to say this kind of stuff? And that's what prompted me to speak out. I'm so glad you have because you've been such a good voice in this discussion and your connection with a family farm and understanding the industry is so critical because it allows us to cut through the bad information that we find in social media with an extremely credible voice. And how much have you been able to influence maybe the more contemporary discussions like in the last couple of years where they've wanted to impose such strong regulations like on the Big Island where in Puna and those regions where papayas are grown extensively, yet you have so many people, even celebrities, well, I don't know if Roseanne Spar is a celebrity anymore, but uh, marginal, once relevant personalities, uh, making up complete falsehoods about papayas. Yeah, that... You know, Hawaii has been the central of this, how do I say? Essentially, it feels like a circus because you have Roseanne Barr, you had Ben Stiller, you have this group called the Babes Against Biotech, just, you know, just a barrage of like a rainbow of people. And here we have most of the farmers, they are predominantly Filipino, some Japanese, very small Asian farmers. And it's not in our culture to, to do that. So it's been a real difficult leap. However, having me lived on the mainland for so long, I decided, what do I have to lose? What If we don't speak up, we lose everything. And these people lose nothing. And misinformation will take away a farm. It will take away the farm from my kids. It will take away science innovation that my kids would want to do. It takes away education. And that, for me as a mother who's worried about my kids' future and what opportunities they will have in Hawaii, it bothers me to no end. It bothers me that we don't... This kind of fear-mongering prevents any kind of research from really taking place in Hawaii. Like, what if we wanted to do ALS research that might be biotech-based? They're not going to want to invest in Hawaii. Our people will, will be at a loss, and it's frustrating. And the other big part about this, too, is the papaya was such a success story that came at a different time in a different regulatory climate and different suspicion of the technology and was such a success and could have been the model that here a public effort, not a big company, a public effort created this product that solved the problem for farmers, and that's how this should work. And to see that taken back or to be fought against as though it's something wrong and evil taints that beautiful model that we can do this as a public effort together to solve something that matters, and nobody's making a profit except for those farmers, and then people are getting the food they need. 
And and so what are what do you see is happening right now and in terms of the current laws and rule changes and maybe a little bit about the future of papaya farming and, and the GE papaya in Hawaii? Well, basically with all the anti-GMO laws passed on the county being invalidated, that was a bright that was a bright spark in the the whole issue in Hawaii that yes, the farm laws should be regulated at the state level. That's where it lies. So it gave us a glimpse of hope. And it also helps empower our leaders to say, yeah, it belongs in that level. The misinformation still continues. We're always fighting, trying to defend our lives. But there's been a reprieve with the court, the court hearing. So I'm, I'm kind of glad. So I, there, there is a glimmer of hope there. Yeah, I, I really should add, just to get our listeners familiar, that each island is in fact a, a county in Hawaii. And so uh, a county board of maybe five to seven officials makes the decisions about county uh, rules and county regulations and can pass ordinances that can restrict different kinds of farming practices. And this is exactly what's happened throughout the islands in different levels. And uh, activists will go to an island where they can control a, a small number of, of local uh, politicians and make decisions that have profound effects that are statewide. So the new movement has been, at least politically, to have there be some sort of overriding state rules that will dictate how counties may behave in these regards. Because you can't mothball a papaya farm. <laughs> you know, let's just shut it down for a few years and we'll start it again sometime. I'll just take my livelihood elsewhere. You know, it just can't happen. Uh, any thoughts on that? Um, that's why we need to empower the farmers to start speaking up because we're a very small, small population. And not only do we need farmers to speak out, but we need the customers to speak out. And we really need to amplify the true benefits of what has happened. I mean, it was just a simple tool that revolutionized the industry in Hawaii. And, you know, that has implications far beyond farming. In Hawaii, we have many native species. They're under attack, too. Those implications passed at the county level will impede every single body's ability to save that native species. You know, and blindly boxing the GMO as bad issue is very dangerous. And as a state, we stand to lose a tremendous amount of things by taking that stance. That's such a great note to end on. Um, that th There's so much more that can be done here. And in a place like Hawaii, the technology can be a, a tremendous benefit. And so where can people find you if they were interested in more information, maybe about you or maybe follow you on Twitter, website, something like this? Uh, basically, I had my alias, my blog, uh, hawaiifarmersdaughter.com. That's where you can find me. And my Facebook page is the same, hawaiifarmersdaughter.com. And uh, I strongly recommend everybody take a look at this. It's a wonderful page, uh, great information um, about Hawaii and, and other places too. I'm uh, definitely a finger on the pulse of the of this particular topic. So, uh, you know, Joni, thank you so much for your time, and uh, hopefully, it was really a pleasure to meet you in person. So, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for hearing our story. Oh, you
So today is a really special talk in biotech because we have with us one of the true innovators of biotechnology as it really affected an industry that we don't normally think about. It's not a big ag crop, but rather a smaller regional crop that was suffering from a very bad viral disorder that luckily had someone step in to help solve the problem. And we have on uh, Dr. Dennis Gonsalves um, calling, uh, well, today on joining us on Skype from Hawaii. So, uh, yeah, so you're um, really a hero to many people in the papaya industry and certainly a key person in the history of genetic engineering. And most people know what you did and your contributions to this, but could you tell me a little bit about what was happening in the Hawaiian papaya industry in the late 1980s when you stepped in to solve the problem? The uh, papaya ring spot virus actually was discovered in Hawaii in 1945 on the island of Oahu, where the main uh, papaya industry was. Uh, and the virus actually wiped out the industry on the island of Oahu. So the industry moved to the big island in the district of Puna, actually, where they have the live uh, volcanoes. And in there, in Puna, uh, there was a lot of uh, volcanic land. The land was cheap. Uh, they had 100 inches of water a year, 100 inches of rain a year, and a lot of sunshine. And they had a specific variety called kapoho that was suitable for that uh, area. So starting in the 1960s, um, the industry grew in uh, Puna, uh, and by 1970s, um, it represented 95% of Hawaii's papaya production. But very importantly, there was no papaya ring spot in the Puna district. But by 1978, the papaya ring spot virus was known in the top town of Hilo, which was only 19 miles away. So given that this might be a potential problem to Hawaii's second most important uh, fruit industry, um, I, uh, the dean of the College of Agriculture at the University of Hawaii asked me to start to work on that. At that time, I was at Cornell University. And when you started to work on this problem, did they ask you for a biotechnology solution or was it more traditional plant pathology? You know, in 1978, um, biotechnology was uh, present, but in relation to uh, developing virus-resistant plants and so forth, the concept had not really been developed. So um, they, they just asked me to try to determine if we could control the virus and actually the the concept a prevailing concept that could work at that time was the concept of cross protection and basically this concept is idea is that if you inoculate a healthy plant with a mild strain of let's say the papaya ring spot virus that plant would get infected by the mild strain and would prevent the uh, infection or damage by a severe strain. So starting in 1978, 
I uh, started uh, try trying to use cross protection to control the virus. So we developed a mild strain, and by 1983, we actually had a mild strain, and we tested it under greenhouse conditions and under field conditions in Hawaii, and uh, it really did work. It protected against severe infection of the uh, Hawaii strain. Uh, we uh, tried that in Taiwan, and, and we found out that it delayed the infection, but was not that effective. Are there any natural sources of uh, resistance, even in maybe wild papaya? Well, you know, um, back, uh, I would say, up to about maybe uh, 10 years ago, there were other um, what they called species of Karika. Uh, and, and there were these, what they felt were wild uh, Karika papaya relatives, but it was not Karika papaya, was uh, um, other uh, species. Now, some of the species um, were resistant to papaya ring spot, but you could not cross, get a, um, a viable cross between the Karika papaya and these other uh Karika species, and, and so uh, um, they, they could not transfer the resistance uh, gene, and in fact, now um, Karika papaya is in fact a lone representative of Karika papaya. The other uh, Karika species that they felt were Karika species have been named uh, um, uh, uh, a different name, Vasconcella. Yes, yeah, so there's no easy way to breed this in, and you're seeing cross-protection and other types of management-associated tricks break down. So what would lead you to the biotech solution of with the recombinant DNA solution of introducing, say, part of a virus in the genome in order to spur the plant's assault on the uh, invading virus? Yes, well, you know, uh, as I mentioned in... 1983, we had developed a mild strain. We were working it and testing it in uh, uh, Hawaii, in uh, Taiwan. But about that time, you know, the um, the ability to isolate the uh, um, genes of a virus, to clone them, and so forth, were becoming not easy, but but one could do it. And then the concept of pathogen-derived resistance was sort of put forward in 1984-85. So, uh, and the concept was that if part of the pathogen, let's say a virus, let's say the code protein gene of the virus was um, introduced into a plant, let's say the papaya, um, it would make that papaya resistant to that virus. And in fact, in 1985 and 86, uh, Roger Beachy, um, published uh, on this technique showing that the cold protein gene when put into tobacco and tomatoes uh, rendered the transgenic uh, tobacco and tomato resistant to uh, uh, tobacco mosaic virus. And just about the same time, the same year, John Sanford, who was actually just uh, um, in a different building uh, at Cornell. Uh, so we were friends. He uh, published a paper essentially called Parasite-Derived Resistance, um, suggesting that this approach 
uh, could work. So given uh, um, the fact that our efforts on uh, uh, cross-protection was, was working, but it did not seem uh, um, that, uh, that uh, effective, um, we started to, uh, uh, our uh, control method of trying to use genetic engineering. And um, at that time, I was very fortunate in that I had also been working with Jerry Slidem, who was at Upjohn Company, and they had just bought the Asgro Seed Company. And they were trying to develop uh, virus-resistant um, vegetables, uh, primarily uh, cucurbits and squash. And so they had contacted me since I was a, a virologist, and I had been working with him to develop genetically engineered uh, squash that might be resistant to viruses like papaya ring spot also affects uh, squash and then zucchini yellow mosaic virus, watermelon mosaic virus, and cucumber mosaic virus. So um, uh, given all of that uh, relationship with Jerry Slidem, we started to work on trying to develop a genetically engineered papaya that would resist uh, the papaya ring spot virus. We uh, took up the approach to develop a genetically engineered papaya for Hawaii. And this approach was the pathogen-derived resistance approach. Um, basically, we would use the, the uh, co-protein gene of the papaya ring spot virus and to the de and determine if, if we insert that gene into the chromosomes of the papaya, that it would be uh, resistant. So the research team involved Jerry Slidem, an excellent molecular biologist who was employed at Upjohn, but Upjohn owned Asgro Seed Company, and Asgro Seed Company was trying to develop transgenic uh, uh, squash that resistant to a number of viruses. And then the other uh, uh, components of the team was uh, Richard Manzark, a horticulturist, at the University of Hawaii that was working on papaya, and Maureen Fitch, his graduate student, who was an, an employee of USDA, and um, she was part of the team. And so, uh, starting in 1984-85, we started this approach to uh, develop a genetically engineered uh, papaya that would be resistant to the virus using this concept. Now, um, Still, at that time, it, it, uh, it's, it's very interesting to know that even at that time, where in Pune, the, there was no virus in Pune, the state of Hawaii knew that the, the virus could jump to uh, Pune. So they actually had uh, a small band of people that uh, would go around the town of Hilo and look for a virus-infected papaya and they had authority to chop it down. So Hawaii was was uh, weary that uh, you know it, it could uh, go to Pune, where ninety five percent of the uh, papaya industry was. Now the expertise of the team was Richard Manzer was a horticulturist, and Maureen Fitch was uh, a very good at tissue culture. So her work was to do the tissue culture and then um, utilize the cold protein genes to um, try to transform papaya. And so um, Jerry Slidem, uh, I collaborated with Jerry Slidem in getting the cold protein sequence engineered. And so 
um, uh, this uh, effort to try to transform papaya first started uh, using agrobacterium and uh, for, for whatever reason at that time, about 1986, um, the, the effort to uh, transform papaya using agrobacterium did not work. Now, um, very fortunately, John Sanford, about 1985, had invented the gene gun. And as I mentioned earlier, he, he was just uh, um, you know, a, a building away from uh, my lab in uh, Cornell. So um, we uh, utilized the gene gun and, um, you know, um, starting in 1987-88, uh, we uh, did the first uh, experiments to uh, try to transform the Kapoho variety, which was the dominant yellow flesh variety, and the sunset variety, which is a commercial papaya, but is a red flesh, but it wasn't a preferred uh, cultivar in Hawaii. So uh, around 1988, we did the first experiments uh, actually using the father of the gene gun in Sanford's lab where we utilized a uh, uh, 22 blank 22 caliber uh, bullets to force this uh, DNA that has coded the tungsten particles into the, the cells of the tissue culture, the papaya. And, um, you know, uh, um, uh, we got results of uh, about 15 uh, cell lines uh, were regenerated of, uh, of uh, papaya. And um, so um, some of these lines were cloned. Uh, well, these lines were actually cloned, about 10 clones per um, line, and then shipped up to me at uh, Cornell. And in uh, early 1991, I, uh, I, I inoculated about eight uh, lines of uh, this transgenic papaya. And uh, this one line called 55-1, when I inoculated that, uh, it showed resistance. And, you know, it's very interesting. Um, you know, you go through this hypothesis, you say this might work, you go to the experiments, now you have... Okay, you have something that our test showed it has the co-protein gene, and then you lay out your experiments, the control have no gene, and then the, the lines uh, have the gene, and then you inoculate them, and then then, then the moment of truth is going to come. <laughs> and uh, so I, I inoculated them, and I washed them every day, and in about 15 days, you know, the controls were showing virus symptoms, and one of the lines called 55-1 did not show any symptoms. And so the experiment continued for three, four, uh, two, up to three weeks, four weeks. And by four weeks, I was very confident that in the greenhouse, this line 55-1, which was not Kapoho, which was sunset, a red flesh papaya, solo papaya, that was commercial, but not the preferred variety uh, showed um, uh, resistance and you know it, it, it's it's an incredible feeling when you think about something how to do it and then you actually come to a moment of truth in the greenhouse and and this one line looked good and and you know I um, if I may I'd like to add just a bit more now the the general um, process at that time was that 
you get seeds of the plants and then you look how the um, the genes was inherited and all of this stuff. Well, you know, I think uh, the one thing with our team is we were focused on trying to control the problem. So instead of waiting to get seeds, we cloned line 55-1. Uh, you know, Maureen Fitch cloned it and we um, applied for USDA um, to uh, get a permit to do a field trial on the experimental station at the University of Hawaii on the island of Oahu, where the virus was bad. And Richard Manzard headed that small field trial. It was less than a quarter of an acre. And uh, so the clones were planted out um, starting in April um, 1992, and, and, and throughout the several months, the clones were planted out, and then, you know, naturally, we had non-transgenic plants that were inoculated with the virus, and then, essentially, we would let the aphids do uh, the transmitting of the virus. The field trial was started in April 1992. In May, May 1992, Steve Ferreira and I were returning from Guam, we, we had gone there to actually um, work on uh, testing out the cross protection in Guam with our mild strain. And when we flew back to Oahu, May, it was about May 1st, uh, we got off the plane on Honolulu and Steve Ferreira's technician and, and my son, Andrew, who was a graduate student at that time, met us at the airport and they said, you know, we better go to the big island. So we jumped on the uh, plane, went to the Big Island, and lo and behold, the long-awaited invasion of papaya ring spot was discovered in Puna. So what we were afraid would happen had happened. So in May 1992, um, uh, Puna uh, was infected with the virus. So, so, so the interesting part here is that we had just we had we had greenhouse evidence that our um, uh, line fifty five dash one would work. We fast forwarded, you know, within a year, uh, a year later, we were already now putting in clones of that line in a small experimental plot. And then one month after we started experiments, then then you find the virus had had uh, gone into Kapoho. So now you have. A potential scientific solution, and now you have a potential devastation of the industry. So, the state of Hawaii did try their very best. They, they built a task force to go in and try to chop down virus infected plants, and then they, they'd have a system where um, they'd go scout and they'd see a virus infected plant, and then they'd chop it down and it sh uh, cut down plants that were uh, within a radius of 100 feet or so. They, they tried all kind of stuff, but sadly, by October 1994, the state of Hawaii concluded that they could not control the virus. So, so the, now, now the industry is really in bad shape because now 95% of the crop is is, uh, is um, in trouble and, and by that time the virus has spread to about half the crop in two years. So, 
here we do we're doing a field test in in, in um, uh, Oahu this small less than a quarter of an acre field test now so this this uh, line that we had was actually a female a female clone of the sunset papaya which is which is a sibling of sunrise you're probably very familiar with sunrise yes which is um, so so um, and the industry like the yellow flash so Richard Manzard works to get the uh, code protein uh, get the line 55-1 which is female so he crosses with um, uh, hermaphrodite uh, non-transgenic sunset and then he uh, sells until he gets uh, a line of genetically engineered sunset that is homozygous for the cold protein gene. So then he gets that and then he makes a cross of the sunset which is genetically engineered line 55-1 with the uh, the dominant non-transgenic papaya called kapoho is, is yellow flesh. Yellow is dominant over red. The flesh is no, uh, yellow. So it's more kind of oranges. Now, nice, beautiful color. Uh, and, and, and he does it in a very small field trial. That, that, that's the thing. It's no big replicated field. It's a small field trial. He selects it. So by 1995, within three years after he put the field trial in, we have the rainbow papaya, which is a F1 hybrid between the, the tragedic sunset and kapoho. And then the, the a sunset, the tragedic sunset is renamed, is called sanat papaya. It's a red flesh, excellent papaya, homozygous for the cold protein gene. So we have the uh, sun up and then we have the uh, rainbow uh, papaya. The, and, and what is developing there? By 1995, the industry is huge problem. My gosh, there, I mean, it's the virus is all, all over. So, so they, they are very, very nervous and uh, worried and, and you know, um, some packing houses are starting to uh, go under, so 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 there, there's a lot of tension. There's actually, a lot of tension. Um, so, um, a faithful thing is done. I was at the biotech uh, conference in um, California, and, and I met this uh, uh, USDA regulator. His name was Fodin, and I said, "Hey, you know, do you think it's possible that we might be able to put?" A field trial in the middle of the devastated area because we have mm-hmm. something that looks good in the field on Oahu, but we really got to see whether it works, you know, where, where ground zero is. And he said, well, you know, um, uh, make an application and uh, send it in. So we uh, did that. At that time, Steve Ferreira, who had joined the project, he was an extension plant pathologist, um, he led the establishment of the field trial in uh, Kapoho. Now, the field trial was uh, in Rusty Perry's farm, and, and, and at that time, you know, it had to be 
uh, where, where there's no papaya around. So he, he actually bulldozed some area uh, that had citrus on one side, banana on one side, and it just forest on another side. And the the thing is that there was a small papaya uh, field. It just must have been about an eighth of an acre that had that he had planted that was virus infected. So within that area, the area was fenced out. We, we uh, did this uh, field trial and using the sunup papaya and the rainbow papaya all replicated and all of this stuff. And then also we did a solid block of rainbow papaya and it's surrounded by um, non-transgenic papaya. And I don't know if you've seen the picture. That That's a famous Yes, uh, that's a very famous picture. photo. Well, I, I show that so in it, all it, my it, talks. It's good to get the history of that because, you know, this this here now is is uh, we we did that field trial very quickly because the industry was in big trouble, and and, and I, I can tell you the the uh, um, oh the, the tension was very high and some of the growers didn't think that it would work and all of this stuff. So you know we uh, we wanted to do the field trial to really see if that thing could work under under the gun and uh well it was started in october 1995 and and within uh eight nine months oh my gosh you could see that huge difference and i'll never forget the day when we held the first just like a public uh uh display of the field trial uh, growers came packers came and all of this stuff it was late 1996, early 1997. Oh my gosh, they turned, you know, they're going through this banana field and they turn right and they see this block. Dramatic difference. They say, oh my gosh, incredible. Then the question is, when can we get it? And we say, oh, sorry, you, uh, you cannot get it because this thing is regulated. So he said, well, uh, uh, how, how, how are we going to get it? deregulated well you know we had no money and all of this stuff but here is where we stepped out of our comfort zone as scientists because we are committed to trying to help the industry we ourselves um, you know did the experiments and wrote up the applications I wrote up the applications for USDA submitted it in uh, um, January 1996 and all of this stuff was done by us with, with almost very little money. We were very fortunate to have Senator you know, give us a quote pork barrel money. Um, we we uh, uh, John Sanford and I actually tried to get a competitive grant, but uh, uh, we uh, didn't get it. But but anyway, the, the bottom line is that we uh, just did what had to be done, and so by. 1995, 1996, 7, you know, we're convinced that we have something that is resistant and, and the Packers look at the papaya uh, the, and all the, oh my gosh, this rainbow papaya is, is pretty good papaya. Looks pretty good. And Steve Ferrer did an excellent uh, job in monitoring the field and was replicated and, and he published a beautiful paper in plant disease on, on that field trial but so 
the the next step was uh, uh, you know um, going from what looks good in the field that up to that is all science you've done it in the field now you get into the red zone you got to translate your science into something that's translational biotechnology and, and in order to that to do to reach your audience the farmers you got to get it deregulated you don't get it deregulated that is nice and academic but it's not going to help so we worked through it and then um literally um six years almost to the day that the virus was discovered in Pune in May 1992. On May 1st, 1998, seeds of rainbow papaya and sun of papaya were distributed to the growers uh, free because the state of Hawaii had given funds to the uh, the papaya industry and whatnot to produce seeds and so forth. So, so the seeds were given uh, to the growers free, and um, uh, nearly what, what eighteen years later, it still is uh, going, and, and, and things look uh, very good. So, so you know, um, that's that that's sort of like the inside story. <laughs> Of the uh, transgenic papaya. It's really nice to hear the inside story because I can hear in your voice just the excitement of seeing it working and can kind of picture with you how this thing, just, you know, the discovery that you've maybe solved the problem. And what what happened that first year? I know that you said that the industry was really in bad shape, but was it really almost immediate that it turned around based upon the new papaya? Yes, uh, you know, by uh, 1998, actually in 1992, Pune had harvested um, 53 million pounds of papaya. By 1998, the harvest was down to 26 million pounds of papaya, and nearly all of them were infected with the virus. And then... Uh, the pack, several packing houses has had gone out of business, and so so it was it was a a bad uh, bad situation. So um, you know the the growers that and you know some growers uh, did not want to be the first to plant. But I was just talking to Alberto Belm, is a great friend of mine, um, uh, just just uh, several days ago because um, uh, they they try to do a video to um, you know show. What the papaya did for people and so forth. So he said, "Oh my gosh, 1997, he had planted 70 acres of non-transgenic papaya. He didn't harvest a single fruit. Can you imagine that? He had he had used lots of money to plant that. The virus came in, wiped them out." Then, in 1998, he got seized from the industry, and he was going to check it out. He was going to test it. Some people didn't want to go yet. He said, well, I'll get as much seized. And then he planted, uh, I think, over 10 acres of the rainbow papaya. And and, and, and several days ago, we, we stood at the very spot 
where he planted his first rainbow papaya. And 18 years later, he's been planting rainbow papaya, and, and he's, he has, uh, two of his kids has gone to college, he support, you hear him tell the story, you know, he's just very happy that, uh, you know, of this technology, and it, it, it helped him, and, and, you know, I, you know, a lot of people ask me to, for various interviews, and they want to go see, so I, I go take them to go see uh, Alberto Bellman's, and, you know, I, and when I go there and I see, oh my gosh, you know, um, it, it, it's amazing. 18 years later, the rainbow papaya is growing beautiful. And, and the resistance and the mechanism still seems to be holding up very well, right? Yes, and you know, um, that that was a big question that a lot of people had, you know, uh, even the regulars, hey, what, do you think it's going to hold up? And, and we said, well, we don't know, but... Uh, um, I, I felt it was going to uh, hold up mainly because, um, you know, my, my uh, as a virologist, um, I, I felt that the population of the virus in Hawaii was pretty homogeneous. Uh, it was introduced in 1945, but not, not, I don't think too many other introductions of the virus strains came in. And... Uh, um, and, you know, it, it, uh, so we tested it against a number of isolates of the virus from Hawaii, and, and it showed uh, uh, good uh, resistance, and uh, we looked at the sequence homology, you know, it was, was very high. We did not know the mechanism back in 1992, but, but now when you look at it, it's uh, RNAi. So, you know, so you have the cold protein gene, and, and for... Uh, virus to mutate so much so that it, it will have uh, such a different homology in a cold protein, I think that's very unlikely. I, I think the danger of breakdown is that other strains of the virus would be introduced into Hawaii. And in fact, in 1994, we we uh, tested that idea. I thought at first, oh my gosh, this papaya! I'm gonna save the whole world. This thing gonna work. <laughs> so we then, you know, we uh, got different strains of the virus at Cornell. Since no papaya is grown there, only in the greenhouse. We got strains from Thailand, Taiwan, and and, and uh, Florida, and, uh, and and other places. And oh my God, we published this paper. Um, man, the the strains from Taiwan and Thailand just broke down the resistance of the rainbow papaya. And when you look at the mechanism, that that, that that's how we've published a lot of papers. But basically, the rainbow papaya is a hybrid; it's hemizygous for the cold protein gene. Now, the resistance of the sun of papaya, which is homozygous for the cold protein gene, is much stronger than the rainbow papaya that is hemicycles and we've published all of this stuff but I, I think the resistance in Hawaii gonna hold up for uh, for a long time because you know um, Hawaii is very strict about introducing papaya plants to um, you know from outside of Hawaii so unless some new strains get smuggled in I think uh, the chances of 
rainbow being overcome is not not that great. And one of the really nice sides of the story is you mentioned you were at Cornell, but you are a native Hawaiian. So how did it feel to be able to solve a problem in your homeland uh, while at Cornell? You know, I that that is one of the most uh, satisfying, um, I think, things in my scientific uh, career. Um, from 1978 to, to I reached from... 2002, when I retired from Cornell, I, I came back to Hawaii two or three times a year on, on the research. And, and you know, I, I, I knew all of these people. I mean, you know, knew all of them. And so we were really good buddies and so forth. But, you know, the, the satisfaction to me is, um, uh, you know, I, I was born and raised on a sugar plantation. And, and my, my parents... Uh, my 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 dad started working on the sugar plantation when he was 13 years old, so he never got to finish um, school, and so we we were just just plantation laborers, and, and a lot of the people in uh, the papaya farmers were our first generation were first generation Filipinos who had come to Hawaii and, and they liked farming, so a lot of their part time job was raising uh, papaya and. You know, they, they knew when the virus came, they knew that, oh my gosh, we kind of raised the papaya, the papaya tree not growing good. But if you ask them about what is the virus, what is the transgenic plant, they, they really don't know. So, um, but they, they could see it working. And so he, here is where, you know, as a scientist, um, uh, you know, I mean, for, for me, I, I definitely don't want to release anything that is not safe for consumption and and uh, not safe for the environment. So um, it's satisfying that we could help people who actually could not help themselves. They, they, they're not from big companies and all of this stuff. And that is the most satisfying thing today. In fact, just the other day, my wife and I were walking into Home Depot and then this uh, Filipino, kind of youngish Filipino guy, hey, Dennis, and I see, oh, he's a papaya girl, and we start talking and all of this stuff. That's the satisfaction that I have, um, you know, in, in trying to utilize uh, this technology. And, you know, I, uh, it's probably going to be my last publication. I, I was invited to write uh, the prefatory chapter for the annual review of phytopathology. And, well, when they contacted me, they said, you know, Dennis, uh, you know, the, the, don't focus on all the scientific stuff that you did, but just kind of tell us your story. Well, where did you come from? How did you come to this, uh, this statue that you are? And, and so the title of my prefatory chapter was The uh, Wayward Hawaiian Boy Returns Home. And I traced... I, I trace my career. You know, when, when when I was a young kid, oh, stuttering was a huge problem, and I wouldn't ask questions and this and that. My grades were not that good, but a guy, Dr. Eduardo Trujillo, hired me as a technician on Kauai. And, you know, I think my grade point average was 2.5 when I finished uh, uh, the university in horticulture. And so I was a technician on Kauai, and... And I was by myself, and he said, oh, Dennis, you know, there's the disease of papaya, go look at it, and 
And so I, I go try to figure out what to do, try to do experiments. But the thing about that, I did not know what I wanted. I had no inkling of being a scientist. Oh my gosh, when I did that, when I was on Kauai and I did those, I said, oh my gosh, this thing is so interesting. And then, you know, I wanted then to do research, but oh, I looked at my grades, oh my goodness, I, I, I don't think I can get into graduate school. So I sheepishly, I asked, and I guess I was doing a good job as a technician, so I asked Eduardo Trujillo, Hey, Eduardo, do you think there might be a chance I can go to graduate school? And he looked at me and said, oh, my gosh, Dennis, I don't know, but, you know, okay, why don't you apply? And somehow I got into graduate school and started on probation. But, but you know, once you know what you want to do and so forth, I, I uh, you know, got good grades and all of this stuff. And so, but he used to tell me, you know, when I was doing my master's degree, actually on tomato spotted wheel of papaya, I would do my master's degree on that. And uh, he would tell me, you know, Dennis, and I, I was actually pretty good at biochemistry. Um, he said, you know, Dennis, don't just be a test tube scientist. Do something to help people. That Eduardo Churio was a most incredible plant pathologist. My gosh, you know he—I mean, he knew plant pathology. So I kind of took that into heart, and then so, but I still started. I was very poor at speaking, so then I got accepted at uh, UC Davis, and so 1968, never been on a jet plane. Never been out of Hawaii. My my wife Carol and two young kids. My my son was only three months old, and, and my daughter was uh, less than two years old. We flew off to California and then at Davis, and I you know went to school. And, and I actually my major professor was Robert Shepard, actually the guy who discovered cauliflower mosaic virus and DNA, but. As I did my experiments there, and I was still stuttering, but my grades were good, my research was good. Um, he would tell me, I would get all my data, all my data, and I rushed to him and tell, hey, I got this, this, and we look at it, and he's, he, then he put his arms, you know, together. Now, Dennis, tell me, what have you really accomplished with all these experiments you did? And that's a sobering thing for your major professor to ask you. He said, she said, you know, you're going around doing all of this stuff, but tell me, out of all that you stuff you did, what have you really accomplished? So those two things are the stuff that I kept. What Eduardo Trujillo told me, Dennis, just don't be a test to scientist. Do something to help people. And my major professor in Davis, tell me, Dennis, what have you really accomplished? And those are good things to keep in mind. So I, I sort of followed that, the tenet, those advice throughout my uh, career. If you look at my records, I, I published a lot of papers and whatnot, but a lot of them are, are, are you know, some, uh, some really basic work, but always trying to translate the uh, uh, results, and I think that's what helped our team to be 
that is different from other research teams. You, you, you know, when we first got resistance in a greenhouse, oh my gosh, one of our colleagues said, oh my gosh, our job is done, man, man, this is great, we're going to publish it. <laughs> I think it was publishing Nature Biotechnology and this, mm-hmm. and this and that. I said, oh no, we got to get this thing to the growers. See, it, it's that kind of, of attitude and that's what I learned from these two professors that uh, gave me a chance. And funny, at Davis, I was uh, studied a lot. I, I, I was a good student, good research, but this guy, this professor, Dennis, what's going to happen? My gosh, you finish up, you go to meetings, and, and you, cannot, you can't even talk good. So, lo and behold, about five months before I'm finishing up, University of Florida at Lake Alfred, had a job opening, I applied, and they asked me to go and interview in Lake Alfred mm-hmm. for a citrus virus, and I go there. And, and 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 by that time, though, you know, I'm getting a, a bit more confident. Raising a sugar plantation, I wasn't very confident of my smarts. But at Davis, you know, I was hey, my gosh, you know. So I was getting more confident at practice, but I still started, I practiced, but I practiced hard trying to, get a seminar so I go to Lake Alfred and this guy Herman Rice his name was okay now we're gonna have uh, Dennis Gonzalez give his seminar on the the biology of the two sedimenting components of PE nation mosaic virus and I get up there and, and this is no lie this is the truth I get up there I give my seminar never started a bit and I haven't started since so yeah. it was just a question of you finding your confidence and, uh, you know, really grow, yeah. growing yeah, I, into. I think it was confidence. And so, um, you know, but I guess the point I'm getting at is um, I, I I was never uh, made to be a scientist. It's just just fortunate that, that I was a technician and I loved it and some people gave me a chance. And, and I, I've never forgotten my uh, plantation roots. You know, I, I, I know where I come from, and uh, I know how to relate to these people. I know, I know, I feel these people. I know how to relate to these papaya farmers. And these are the kind of emotions that drove our team to, to, to do the work and all of this stuff. And, and you know, we we're very fortunate that uh, it worked. Uh, but sadly, there, there's very few public sector, other public sector projects. And uh, uh, at some point, uh, a lot of the um, land-grant universities are going to have to ask uh, why. And, I you know, you hear all about the excuses, too much... Uh, it's too expensive, and you gotta get intellectual property rights, and all of this. And now with all this controversy, so. But you know, um, and, and a lot of people tell me that I was just lucky. Well, I'm sure I was lucky, but uh, you know, uh, that's it. But uh, I, I think we need more examples. But uh, unfortunately, we don't have too many other examples. Well, I think your your example is such a good one, and you know, there's so many other scientists I can think of who share your passion for helping people and really want to do the right thing. 
But with today's regulatory climate, the hostility towards uh, science that tends to be innovative or use genetic engineering, it makes it very difficult for us to be able to deploy those tools in meaningful ways. And you look at the trouble just with something like golden rice or the beta carotene banana, you know, a very humanitarian centric opportunity that is uh, just hindered by regulatory and by those that really are not excited about the technology. It's really disappointing. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, um, what you said is absolutely true. And, you know, my, my take is I think we need to go small step by small step. You know, the golden rice, the 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 vitamin A and rich banana, even cassava, they're, they're, they're a big problem. Man, hey, man it's going to be great to solve those problems. And I'm on a scientific advisory board for that. Uh, the grant to uh, make um, cassava resistant to the viruses. But my take is, why, why don't we just do some small things, maybe some, uh, you know, some tomatoes to help Florida, or tomatoes <laughs> to help other stuff. You know, j- just go one step at a time, and, and you, you can learn from all of these things. And 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 part of all of this stuff is is really an art. It's really an art on how to get these things done. Because and you know today there's a lot of opposition, but but I am certain you can get it done. Absolutely certain. If I gave you a grant for ten million dollars and said, you know, uh, Doctor Gonzalez, could you please solve a problem that you would like to solve? What would that be? You know, what what I would do is um i would i would work uh and, and i don't have to spend the 10 million bucks but i would work to ask the question how can we deploy transgenic crop in which the technology works and is safe like a virus resistant papaya or, or virus resistant uh squash or something like this how can we utilize these examples as a way to learn how we can deploy the technology under different scenarios somewhere there um, or, or, or how, how can we work towards you somewhere the, the society may be so much against like Europe or somewhere they may be a little lukewarm like Japan or some may be in China, where they're opportunistic, you know, all of these things are different ways. Each in in uh, in uh, Africa, where where they really need it, but but yeah, there's a lot of opposition. All of these things are interesting research and sociological questions that you cannot answer them until you actually have done it. And so, great, you can do it with golden rice. But, you know, rice, rice is a huge crop. People, I mean, this is big, mega. Papaya is not. But what you see, but you learn the same thing. You got to do the same thing. You got to do the same psychology. And, you know, a lot of people don't know about the situation that, that I encountered in Thailand. Oh, my gosh, it's breaks my heart. Sometimes I wake up at night uh, 
I, I just wake up because I failed in Thailand. You know, in 1995, the government of Thailand came to me and said, Hey, Dennis, and I had been working in Thailand since 1986 to try to control the virus. Cross protection did not work. We had uh, introduced a tolerant variety that, that it grew but got infected. So they came to me. Under Secretary of Agriculture came to me. Department of Agriculture came to us at Cornell and said, Dennis, how can we utilize transgenic papaya? I said, well, you know, why don't you send me a scientist? They don't have to be trained. Send me a scientist to Cornell. We'll try to transform your big papaya, but this scientist is going to do it. And and you give me $15,000 for supplies. They sent the scientists there. And I have a picture. I have a picture. 1998, 1990, yeah, 1997. I have a picture of my wife and I. We carried some of the tissue culture papaya uh, in the tubes and some of the tissue culture papaya all under permit. And the scientists had come to Cornell. Within a year and a half, we had developed a transgenic line that looked resistant in a greenhouse. I, we, I, we took back a lot of that. We flew to Thailand, the regulated, all the quarantine people met us. And, you know, I have a slide of that with, a, with, a, with the Thai Airlines plane behind me. And, and you know what I said? A hope is born. I thought, oh, my gosh. We're going to help these poor people in Northeast Thailand. So the Department of Agriculture people, they took that project, and I go there every year. They took that project. By 1999, 2000, they had the same kind of results we had in Hawaii, but with the big papaya. I have some beautiful pictures there. And, and they, they did. They, then they started to try to get deregulation. They did rabbit feeding studies. They checked under the soil where the papaya is grown and all of this stuff. So by 2002, April 2002, I go back. And oh my gosh, things are looking hopeful. Because, you know, way back in uh, 2000, I think, the government of Thailand had shut down permits to do on-farm field trial because some biotech company and uh, some cotton or something went, went loose, so they shut it down. But in 2004, the summer of 2004, they were going to open up for doing field trials and to get things deregulated in uh, uh, Thailand, you know, you, you got to do on-farm field trials. So anyway, it was getting set. And, you know, I have a picture. In 1986, I took a picture. And most every time I give a talk, there's a picture of my Thai friend. Really, she's kind of old. In 2004, I, uh, I I took a picture of her. She was 92 years old. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this big, beautiful papaya resistant to the virus. Maybe very soon I'm going to deliver that papaya to her village. My gosh, the summer of 2004, Greenpeace jumped the fence, throw the fruit, starts a huge propaganda campaign. The, the, the papaya will never see the light of day. I failed 
in transferring the technology. I mean, it was the scientists in Thailand that were doing that, but, you know, that was a start that I really wanted to complete, and unfortunately, I failed. But what I'm getting at, unless I know how to do this kind of stuff, a lot of these people that do a lot of talking and talking, they don't know. They got to learn. So with my $10 million, that's what I would do. You go with a technology that works. You know it's safe, so there's no question about safety. You know that environment. So now you have to look at the ideology, the politics, and the market, and all of this stuff. And unless you do those things, you're not going to get it through the red zone. Well, that's a really great answer. I That's it, my I man. Think, I think it's a great way to, to wrap this up. I okay. I really appreciate you taking the time with me today. The last time I talked to you, I was in Kapa. Um, I know, yeah. I know. And then I... Uh, and then I, I I know you were very anxious to talk to people over there and all of this stuff. And uh, I, I'm very sorry to hear all the trouble you have been through. Um, but, but, you know, um, uh, that's, I guess that's the price that sometimes you have to pay. But, um, but you know, I, I, I'm very, very strong about this. Unless public sector scientists do something to uh, to to try to help solve problems of the clientele and and if if the solution is a gmo do that the public is going to associate gmos with the big companies so i i i tell you as 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 sure as I'm sitting here, that's exactly what's going to happen. And that's exactly what is happening. And everybody, I understand, everybody wants to solve the problem. They're going to do the banana, great. They're going to do the rice, great. They're going to do all the things, great. But you know, those stuff are so fraught with politics. and whatnot. Why don't you do something a little less so you don't need to... We're already developed. And then learn how the, these people think. See how they think. And then learn from this. And then you can get... That's the same thing. I tell you, we're going to get our papaya deregulated in uh, in the mainland China probably by by the first part of 2017. Yep, we're going to do it. Well, it's it's it. I do think it's calmer waters ahead. And I, and that, that night in Kapa, I I had enjoyed talking to the people who were against the technology. Yeah, yeah. No, that, I, that, uh, I, that was a very very good time. But but as you know, things got woo. Oh yeah, I mean it got really worse. ugly there. But especially on the main island, um, on the big island. But um, but you know I, I still have a lot of um, I think that the the people there have great passion and they're firm and very entrenched in their beliefs and I I feel very strongly that I don't want to invalidate their feelings but I do want to help them understand yeah. and I think by helping them understand and really by helping them understand that we're on the same page that we want healthy food for people that we want a healthy environment especially in the fragile systems of Hawaii. And that it's not about big companies. This is about helping people. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So that's a message I'm trying to work on there. Maybe someday. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, uh, um, you know, I, I've I've read all these uh, 
these things that uh, you know you've been under tremendous uh, pressure and and so forth. So you took a little break, but um, uh, the, the the world needs uh, people like you. I'm I'm on the I'm I'm on the way out already. I'm retired and all of this stuff. But uh, unless we have people like you that that really uh, try to expound on the truth then um, it, it's going to be tougher and tougher because it's tough to stop these uh, all these propagandas. So, Well, I, I, I always say I stand on the shoulders of giants, and, and those are your shoulders too. So, <laughs> I I mean that very sincerely. I, I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've had too, and your story of coming up through school is very similar to mine. Um, and just had some good mentors who gave me some breaks that maybe I didn't deserve, but uh, years later can look back on that very positively and now really want to translate all of this into very positive things going forward. Yeah. And yeah. we'll do it. <laughs> it's all. I think it's only better times ahead. So, um, Okay, my I, man. I, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me tonight, and uh, thank you so much, and uh, please take care. Okay, I'll see you. All right, thank care. you. We'll see you. And that's Dr. Dennis Gonzalez calling all the way from Hawaii, talking about the early days of the papaya ring spot virus resistance in papaya. Thank you very much for listening to what has been a really special Talking Biotech, um, when we can remember that this is really about people and how we can use technology and innovation to change the lives of others in very positive ways. So thank you very much for listening once again. Send me your questions, send me your thoughts, and we'll talk to you next week on Talking Biotech. Ah, the theme song from Hawaii 50 brings us to the end of the Talking Biotech podcast with your host, Kevin Polto. If you have questions, would like to request a guest, or have other tidbits you'd like to add to the show, please send them to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Tell a friend. Help us spread the word of science and science communication. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.